This dynamic message is brought to you by Redemption in Jesus with Marco Bravo. All right, so we've said a word of prayer, so we are going to get right into our Bible study tonight. And so here is the title of our series. It is the Epistle to the Hebrews, and this is part 19. And in part 19, we are going to look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, and we are subtitling this, Jesus, our overqualified priest. Praise God. Now remember, last week, what we looked at, which was towards the end of chapter 4, we saw that how the author began to explain to his audience and to us why Jesus is a superior and greater priest. Or should I say, why Jesus is the superior and the greater priest than any other. There is none. He has no, no priest that matches him. Absolutely not. And so last week we saw that the author began to explain that to the Hebrews, to his audience, and of course to us too, so we can learn. And so in that he shows us that he alone as king priest, remember we looked at that, he's not just high priest, but he's king priest, or you could say chief priest, not as in the chief priest that they had, which was the high priest, but this is more the chief of all priests. And so he's the king priest. And of course, only he could do what he did to redeem us and also to afford us the opportunity to represent us before God. He represents us before God, affording us the opportunity to approach the throne of God. So he set the stage for that. So now in this next section, the next four verses, which are the first four verses of chapter five, he begins now to explain the qualifications, if you will, of priesthood. In other words, what God required as far as appointing someone as priest, as high priest, what the requirements were. And so now he's already explained to us that Jesus is our king priest and only he could do what he did. And now he's going to show his Hebrew audience, because remember, this is written to a Jewish community living outside of Israel. And so they lived under the law. They were accustomed to relating to God by law, by the old covenant. And so now they received salvation in Jesus, which is a different covenant. It's a new covenant. It has a different way of relating to God, which is, of course, by grace. It's a grace covenant. And so, you know, he has to help them make the transition because many of them, were mixing law with grace and there were some who wanted to go back to law because i mean you can imagine being so used to it growing up with something it's hard to just make a sudden transition but nonetheless it was one that was necessary and important and so now what he's going to do is he's going to show them the qualifications of priesthood but also we're going to see how jesus actually <laughs> qualifies but in actual fact he overqualifies. He's overqualified. And praise God for that, because that's the kind of priest that we needed to redeem us. Amen. So let's read that whole portion, and then we'll take a closer look at the different portions, and I'll show you some things. So Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Now it says there, <clears throat> For every high priest, remember he's just finished speaking about Jesus being our king priest, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Alright, so in essence, even though he's making statements about what a high priest looks like, and some of the requirements, it's actually a little more in-depth than that. Now, if you were someone who understood the priestly ministry, 
who understood what it meant to live under the law and live by that covenant, there's a lot here that he doesn't necessarily over-explain, but they would know exactly what he means. So we need to take a close look at it so that we can understand what he means. And so let's do that. Now this is really loaded as every, every single portion is. It's loaded with some powerful, awesome truths and revelations here. So I'm going to share with you as much as I can in the time we have. So let's begin by taking a closer look at Hebrews chapter 5. We've just read it. We're going to look at the first part of verse uh, 1 and then verse 4. Because the two are actually connected to the same uh, subject matter, if you will. Okay, so let's have a look at it. It's going to come up on the screen there. So the first part of verse 1 and then verse 4. Because they're talking about the same thing. And take note and pay close attention to what I've emboldened there as well. It says, for every high priest, so without exception, taken from among men, is ordained for men in the things pertaining to God. And then in verse 4 it says, and no man taketh this honor unto himself. In other words, no one appoints himself to be high priest. But he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest, as you know. And so looking at that, you see that he makes a few statements there. And now we're going to begin to draw the qualifications of a high priest. Because he basically gives them to us right there. And so I think there's five of them that we're going to look at. So the first thing, the first qualification that he shows us here, this is where he says that he has to be taken from among the people. So let's go back to that and let me show you that in verse 1. Look at the first part of verse 1. It says, for every high priest taken from among men. Can you see that? So that's the first requirement. We can go on from that. That's the first requirement. It says that the high priest must be someone from among the people. Or to extend it even further, as far as Jesus, he has to be human. Nothing else, no other creature, no other thing in existence can be high priest. A high priest must be taken from among the people. In other words, he must be human like we are. He's got to be one of us, right? And so, when you look at John 1 verse 1, watch this. This is one of the reasons why Jesus took on human form. Because he couldn't be our high priest. And the first requirement was that he would be from among us. This is why Jesus had to become one of us. So he could be selected from one of us. John 1 verse 1 says, and then four, we're going to jump to 14. But let's read one first. It says, in the beginning, before all time, was the Word, Christ. So we know that another name for Jesus is the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God Himself. Alright, so we see there that it's talking about Jesus. And it says, before anything was created, He was already with God. But not just with God, He's also God. Now, you know, it's referring to the Trinity, the triune God, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that shows us that it's talking about Jesus. Now, watch what it says in verse 14. And the word Christ became flesh. Or you could say in the context of what we're reading in Hebrews, he became one of us, right? And lived among us. See that? The reason why he lived among us, among the people at the time, is so that he could be selected from among them to be high priest. So the plan was there all along. Then it says, And we actually saw his glory, glory as belongs to the one and only begotten Son of the Father, the Son who is truly unique, the only one of his kind, who is full of grace and truth, absolutely free of deception. Okay, so we see there that the first requirement for someone to be a high priest is that they need to be taken from among us. They need to be from among the people. They need to be human. Well, that's why Jesus came. One of the reasons why Jesus came. So that he could be taken from among us. So that he could qualify to be high priest. So that's the first thing we see. Then the second thing that we saw is, is that it said 
that he must be ordained or he is ordained for men in the things pertaining to God. You remember that? So he has to, he has to be ordained to do what God needs him to do for the people. But then also in verse 4 we saw that it says that he must be called of God. He can't just appoint himself. So it can't be like, you know what, I feel like a high priest. I look like a high priest. Everyone tells me I conduct myself like a high priest. So therefore, I should be a high priest. <laughs> no, they couldn't do that. They had to be called of God. And they would have evidence that God called them just as Aaron did when he called him through Moses. And so we see that that's the second qualification or the second requirement, if you will, for someone to be high priest. This is that they must be chosen by God, because that's what it means to be ordained by God. And that's what it means to be chosen by God, not self-appointed. And so look at this in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 1. God speaking here to Moses. Watch clearly how God chooses and God ordains and appoints Aaron. He says, now bring your brother Aaron, speaking to Moses here, bring your Moses Aaron near and his sons with him. From among the sons of Israel, so that he may serve as priest to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. So you can see from that that God Himself called Aaron, and God Himself is about to ordain him in this in that instance, He's about to ordain Aaron into that office. And notice, he says, calling from among the people. So already meeting the first requirement, and now the second, he's being called of God. And then we see the same thing about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when Moses and, um, uh, who was it, Moses and? Elijah. <laughs> when Moses and Elijah appeared, and they were there with Jesus, and then they disappeared, and the cloud cleared, the glory cleared, and it was Jesus. That's the account here. But watch what God says. He does the same thing that he did with Aaron. He does with Jesus here. Luke 9 verse 35. Watch this. Then a voice came out of the cloud. So this is God speaking. Saying, this is my beloved son. Watch what he says next. My chosen one. Listen and obey and yield to him. With that statement, we see God basically calling Jesus. He is calling Jesus and he just ordained Jesus. So we see the same thing. We see the same pattern in Jesus here. So the second requirement is to be chosen by God and we see an example and Jesus qualifies, right? And so, you know, as far as talking about self-appointed <laughs> and, and judgment, <clears throat> I want to encourage you when you have time, this is homework, I guess, if you'll do it. If you have an audio Bible, you can just listen to it. But go and listen to or read Numbers 16. You'll see that in Numbers 16, there were three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they decided to appoint themselves as high priest, or at least they tried. And so they go to Moses, they go to Aaron, they complain, they moan, they get 250 leaders to join them, and a whole bunch of the people to complain and say, you know, who are you? I mean, what, why do you carry on like you're superior? You know, who... You think you're anointed, you think you chosen, you ordained. So are we. You know, we all, God loves us all. We all anointed and appointed. And so Moses says to them, okay, if that's the case, go get your, inc uh, your incense burners, bring them tomorrow, we'll show up before God, and we'll see what happens. I don't want to <laughs> spend time on the whole story. But so they were trying to appoint themselves as priests, as high priests. And long story short, judgment comes upon them because they're under law and literally the ground under them opens up under these men their families and all the people that rebel with them the turn all the people the ground opens up these three, the three men specifically their families and they get swallowed up and it says they went directly into Sheol so that's some serious stuff under the law and so you can see that it's not something that we can just do and appoint ourselves and so, but anyway, so that's the second requirement and we see an example, we see Jesus meets it. The third requirement that we saw in the portion we read in Hebrews was is that he must be ordained to represent <clears throat> the people to God. 
So he must be ordained. What does it mean to be ordained? It means to be divinely appointed. So he is chosen, but then he's also appointed. Just like we have people in ministry offices today that we read about in Ephesians uh, 4, 11 and 12, I think it is. This is that, you know, the, the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, teacher and the evangelist. God appoints them in the same way. He ordains them. This is why we have ordinations today. And so to be ordained means to be divinely appointed. So the third qualification, the third requirement for someone to be a high priest was is that he had to be divinely appointed by God to represent the people to God. And so he, it wasn't someone who was elected. They didn't have elections and people voted to see who they wanted as their high priest. And also, it wasn't, as, as I've explained to you, it wasn't by self-appointment either. And so God appointed, or you could say ordained Jesus as our final high priest. Or should I say, as the final high priest or king priest, better put. Therefore, God no longer appoints anyone else. I mean, think about it. When he appointed Jesus as our king priest, as our high priest, as our chief priest, that was it. That's why when you look at history, from that point onward, God never appointed anyone else. People appointed them, people elected, and they still do today to some degree. But God himself has never appointed anyone. Amen. Why? Because he is the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate high priest, king priest, chief priest for us that we need. No one else can do what he did. Amen. But he had to be ordained. Watch us now in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 and 24, what it says there. It says the former successive line of priests. So it's talking about the Levites, the old covenant priesthood. On the one hand, watch this, existed, past tense, in greater numbers because they were each prevented by death from continuing perpetually in office. In other words, God had to keep appointing a new high priest when the previous one died because they aged, they died, and so they, there was a need for another one. So throughout the old covenant, God just kept appointing high priests and selecting them. But then watch what he says here in verse 24. But on the other hand, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently and without change because he lives forever. So you can see from that, that God appointed Jesus, or you could say ordained Jesus as priest, as high priest. And his appointment is permanent. It is eternal because he lives forever. He doesn't die. He's not going to die. And so, again, there's no need for another one. But we see there that Jesus, again, meets the requirements, the qualifications, the criteria. Because he was ordained by God. And then the fourth requirement, the fourth um, qualification that we saw in that initial portion in verse, the first part of verse 1 and then verse 4, this is that he must be able to relate to humanity completely and totally. You remember it said that he must be from among them and he must represent the people to God from among the people. In actual fact, let's have a look at that. And we'll see this it makes it clearer in verse 2, which we're moving on to now. So look at this, uh, Hebrews 5 verse 2. It says, Who can... Have compassion on the ignorant. You remember that? And on them that are out of the way. <clears throat> For that he himself also is composed with infirmity. Now that's a little hard to understand. And I'll explain it to you. And we'll look at other translations to help us understand that. But there is the fourth requirement that we see there in verse 2. Which is, is that the high priest or the priest must be able to relate to the people completely and totally. In other words, he must be human like they are, and he must face the same things that they faced, same temptations, same trials, so that he can have compassion on them, it says. And so, let's have a look at that same verse from the Living Bible. It's going to help us understand the clearer. It says, And because he is a man, he can deal gently with other men, in other words, people. 
Though they are foolish and ignorant, for he too is surrounded with the same temptations and understands their problems very well. So this is another requirement that we see of the high priest. It's got to be someone who gets you, someone who relates to you, someone who knows what you go through, someone who gets you ultimately. And remember, we discussed that last week and we saw how Jesus more than gets us because he faced temptation and pain and trial and everything else without a threshold, without a limit. We do. We, there's a limit. God places a limit. He did without. So he can definitely relate to us and he can definitely have compassion on us. So does Jesus meet the requirements? Of course he does. Amen. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Watch this. How <laughs> Jesus actually, yeah, he can relate and much more. We actually saw this in our previous lesson. It says, for we do not have a high priest. Remember, that's better translated as king priest or chief priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and understand our weaknesses and temptations, but one who has been tempted, knowing exactly how it feels to be human in every respect as we are, yet without committing any sin. <clears throat> so I don't want to reteach all that. We studied it last week. But there we see that Jesus definitely <clears throat> can and does relate to us. Amen. And so that makes it clear to us that he meets that fourth requirement, that he can relate to us completely and totally and then some. Praise God. All right. So there is another aspect here that we must see in order to understand it clearly. So there's something else that I want to just divert to for a moment. To show you that we saw in that verse. <clears throat> in the first part of verse 2. We're going to see that now as it comes up. Remember it says look at this. It said who can have compassion. But watch the next part. On the ignorant. And on them that are out of the way. Okay so part of this high priest. Being able to get you and understand you. And sympathize with you and understand you. The basis of that, the condition of that, if you will, is, is that specifically is to the ignorant and to them that have gone astray or that have gone out of the way. So, obviously, there's something we need to understand about that. And so, we're going to take a look at that same portion from the Amplified Translation first, which is going to help us understand. So, here it is here. It says, he is able to deal gently with the spiritually ignorant and misguided. So notice, as part of his qualification, the high priest is able to relate to us, but specifically deal gently with those who don't know any better or have been misguided, haven't been taught properly. So in their, in their case, it would be the things of the law. In our case, it would be the things of the new covenant and with Jesus. But notice, he has gentle with the ignorant and the misguided. Well, that means that there are some, in other words, what this is really saying is, is that he's gentle with those who sin or make mistakes who didn't know any better. That means that those who know better and who make mistakes intentionally, well, that doesn't apply to them here. Yeah, he, he, that's why he specifically specifies it. And so let's have a look at that same portion from the Good News Translation. Now, the Good News Translation, the way that it structures that, for that uh, verse, it's in the second part of the verse. But it's saying the same thing. You'll see here. Watch this now. This is how the Good News puts it. He is able to be gentle, watch this, with those who are ignorant and make mistakes. So in other words, what we see from that as far as part of that qualification, that requirement, is, is that he's able to have compassion on those who make unintentional sin mistakes and don't know any better. And so because of that, they go astray. So really and truly what we see here is, is that as far as someone who intentionally sins, who knows better, they don't seem to get compassion from the high priest. And quite honestly, under the law, they didn't get any from God either because that's how that covenant was structured. And I think 
One of the reasons why the author of Hebrews is raising this issue is also for us as New Covenant believers to understand that just because we're under grace, that doesn't give us permission, or as some people say, license, to sin intentionally and willfully and think that grace has got us covered. Ultimately, <laughs> you know, like I said to you, we can't lose our salvation, but we can reject it. And it's not always a verbal thing that we say, I reject it. Sometimes just us intentionally gauging in sin hardens our heart, our conscience is seared, and we may play the Christian role, but we don't actually realize and understand that we've walked away from the truth because we know better. And so it's interesting how it mentions that. Now, I've had a look, and if I'm wrong, someone needs to show me, but I don't think I am. In the Old Covenant, we find no provision for the intentional defiant sinner. If you can find one, please let me know. Send it to me. Let me have it. I will apologize publicly. But I, in the Old Covenant, there isn't one single time mention where <laughs> there is provision made for someone who sins willfully and intentionally and defies God intentionally. In actual fact, sadly, under the Old Covenant specifically, the law, they, the punishment was severe because that's what they signed up for. That's what they wanted. And so praise God for grace and mercy. But that doesn't mean that it's okay now for us to engage in willful sin and all that. Because let me tell you something, even though grace is abundant, even though mercy is unending, we harden our hearts, we end up rejecting our salvation without realizing. So it's just a good caution there for us. Okay, so going back to the requirements of a high priest that we saw in Hebrews in that section there. So the fifth requirement, the fifth reason that we saw there, and let me show you again, and then we'll talk some more about it. So Hebrews chapter 1, now we're going to look at the second part of verse 1, and then the second part of verse 3, because they talk about the same thing here. Okay, so look, look at this. It says, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Then in verse 3, the second part, it says, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. So what this is saying is that the fifth requirement, the fifth qualification of a high priest or for a high priest, is that he needs to bring offerings to God or sacrifices to God, but not just sacrifices, also gifts. So it's talking about two different things, sacrifices, which deal with blood that was shed. But then gifts is talking about something that is not, that's not, that doesn't have blood that has been shed. So obviously they mean something different. And yet it says here that as part of his qualifications, the priest, the high priest, needs to bring both sacrifices where the blood has been shed and then gift offering, the gift offering where there's no blood. So we're going to see that a little bit more and understand that it's, this is really an exciting part. This is what I said to you. I think it's going to really uh, bring the light, a lot of exciting revelation for us here. And so <clears throat> that's what he needs to do. And then it says, but as far as the human high priest, he needs to first do that for himself because he himself is sinful and, and in the same boat. So he needs to do that for himself first, and then he needs to do it for the people. Now, of course, in Jesus' case, he didn't need to do it for himself because he was without sin. But yet he did it for you and I. Amen. So we understand that. So based on what we've seen in that verse and that fifth requirement, this is that basically the uh, high priest, in essence, you could say, was a bridge builder between God and the people. Because he would bring the sacrifice, he would bring the gift offering, and present it for himself, and then present it for the people, thus getting them forgiveness, and restoring them in relationship to God, and thus building the bridge between them. So that's what the essence is saying, and that's what the sacrifices and the gift offering did. And so, those sacrifices and the gift offering, in actual fact, were both types and shadows 
of Jesus. The, the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus, they received on credit, if you will, through those types and shadows. And this was not everlasting. This was temporary for a year, as you know. And so, but they were a type of Jesus, which is the real exciting part here, because why not just sacrifices, but why also gifts or the gift offering? What did that mean? What did they look like? Why that? We're going to take a look at that as we divert a little bit here to understand that. And so we see the same thing confirmed in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3, the first part of that uh, verse. It says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both. Notice, two things, gifts and sacrifices. So you can see, and there's other confirmations, there's other places where the same thing is mentioned. So you can see from that, that it's part of the requirement. He has to bring sacrifices and gifts. What is the gift all about? Sacrifices, we understand, or we have a clear understanding about that. But what is these, these gifts? What is it talking about? Now, think about gifts for a moment. Gifts to honor and uh, reverence God, to show appreciation, to love. Isn't that what a gift does? When someone gives you a gift, they're blessing you. They are honoring you. They are expressing good things to you. Well, it's the same thing. Gifts were there to honor God. Sacrifices were there to acknowledge sin and the need of forgiveness. So the gifts were to honor God. The sacrifices were to acknowledge our need for forgiveness. And of course, uh, it was all a type of Jesus. So they were brought, both brought. One, the sacrifice was, was brought to cleanse us from sin or them. The other was brought to bless God and I guess show appreciation and thank you. But there's more to it because remember, these are types and shadows. And so the gift offering or the, the offerings of gifts, <clears throat> the gift offering, if you look at scripture, it was also known as the meal offering. In actual fact, the King James says the meat offering. It wasn't actual meat. It's just talking about food, things to eat. So it was also, it's also known as the meal offering, or it's also known as the gift offering, or more accurately and specifically, it is known as the grain offering. So it consists of grain. You may say, what is grain? Well, you know yourself, corn, they pick it up from the field, they take it out, they dry it, and then they crush it into a powder. And that's where we get flour from, for example, right? But it comes from grain, grain that is crushed. And so it was a grain offering. It was bloodless. It didn't have, it didn't shed any blood. So what is the resemblance of that? What did it, why did God want that? What did it mean? Why did he specifically say that for someone to be a priest, a high priest, a chief priest, in, in Jesus' case, a king priest, he must bring a sacrifice that shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. But then also he must bring a gift offering or a grain offering. Well, that grain offering is pretty interesting. And unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all its detail, but I'm going to get into some detail here. So we're diverting from Hebrews a little bit here, but we need to understand this. And I believe it's going to bless you. So we'll do a maybe a teaching or a series on this because it's really extensive and it's powerful. So I'm going to give you a summarized version today which will give you the gist of it, okay? And so, it's a sacrifice that did not include blood, the grain offering, the blood of an animal. But yet, that grain offering, listen to this carefully, that grain offering is a type, or was a type, of the life of Jesus. The life that He lived for you and me. So, every time that grain offering was brought to God, the life of Jesus was represented to God. And this is why it was so part of the need for our forgiveness. Because God would see the animal, which would represent the sacrifice of Jesus, how He shed His blood to cleanse us from our sin. And then the grain offering would come in, which would represent the life that He lived, what He went through for you and I. So in that, God would see the totality of what His Son Jesus did for you and me to redeem us. It's pretty powerful. So let's take a look at that grain offering real quick. And I'm going to show you some visuals. Now I need to tell you, the visuals may seem a little elementary, but it's the best ones that I could find, that I could share with you. But at the end of the day, they'll give us a good picture 
of what this looked like and a great understanding of the grain offering, which represents the life that Jesus lived. Okay. And so let's, uh, we find this in Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So we're going to look at it basically verse by verse. Okay. So let's take a look at verse 1 first. And this, this is now God speaking to the people there, giving his explanation to Moses, I think it was, explaining what this grain offering is to be and what it is to have and what they are to do with it. And then you are going to see how it represents the life that Jesus lived. It was a type and shadow of that. Okay, so it says, when anyone offers a grain offering, or you could say gift offering, to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, so crushed grains, right? Fine flour. And he shall pour oil, that's olive oil, on it, and put Frank incense on it. Frank incense was like a perfume, which was edible. And so he says they will put oil on it and also Frank incense on it. Interesting, isn't it? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a um, visual representation of what that probably most likely looked like. So here it is here. All right, so remember it says there that the grain offering must consist of fine flour, which you see on the plate, that's just a pile of fine flour, and then pour oil on it, just like it is on the picture there, which is olive oil, and then you see on the right, you see the frank incense, which will be put on after the oil. So that's what that grain offering consisted of, that's what it looked like, okay? Then it says in verse 2, let's continue reading that. Remember, this is all about the grain offering. Then it says, He shall bring it, that's the grain offering, to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frank incense, <clears throat> and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, you can picture kind of that, what it may have looked like. This was, and you've seen what it looks like. So when they brought it to the priest, the priest would take a handful and he would throw it on the fire to burn it as an offering to the Lord. And of course, as it would burn, mixed with the frank incense, which was a beautiful incense, it left a beautiful smell. It would then rise up and it says that it would be a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, don't forget, this represents the life that Jesus lived. And so when God would smell that, that's exactly what he would sense, what he would feel. I mean, you know, if ever you spray some kind of spray that you like, uh, I know the other day, for example, a while back, um, Helena brought this, uh, you know, spray that you spray in the room and it was Hawaiian something. And so, you know, she sprayed it around and if you close your eyes and smell it, it literally smelled like you were in Hawaii by the beach. It's amazing how smells can do that to you. Isn't that so? And so what this is, yes, is that when the priest throws it in the fire, it is going to burn and it's going to be a sweet aroma to the Lord. Why? Because what God is, what it does for God is he sees the life that Jesus lived to redeem you and me because he loves us. Amen. So let me show you two slides. Let's begin with the first one here to show us what that looks like. So remember here it says that he is to bring this grain offering, which consists of those three things, the fine flour, the oil, and the frankincense, and the oil is being poured over, and then the frankincense is put on it. And then it says, yeah, he's to bring it to one of Aaron's sons, which were the priests, right? And then let me show you the next slide, which will show you what they did. So it says he would take a handful of that and he would throw it in the fire, in the altar, the memorial altar, and it would burn there and the sins that would rise from it is what would be sweet unto the Lord. So praise God for that. Now let's go on to verse 3, still talking about the grain offering. Then it says, the rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. 
It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. All right, so basically what he's saying is, is that once the priest has taken and thrown in a handful, then the rest is for the priests. It is given to them so that they can eat it, they can enjoy it, because it is holy unto the Lord, and they were ordained as holy. Amen. And so let me show you what that looked like. There it is. <laughs> there we have one of our priests. Let's, this could have been Aaron. I don't know. And there they are enjoying it and eating it. Praise God. All right. So then it goes on and in verse uh, 4. And it says, And if you bring as an offering, watch this, a grain offering. Now look at this real carefully. A grain offering baked in the oven. Notice. It shall be unleavened cakes. In other words, no leaven or yeast must be on it. No, just remember the word cakes, because I'm going to talk about that later on. Okay, So remember the word cakes. It says, And if you bring us an offering of grain baked in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. So they have an option here. What God is basically saying is, is that you can prepare your grain offering and bake it in an oven, a closed oven. And then it says, make sure that there are cakes shaped in the form of a cake. And then it says, you can mix it with oil, or if it's, you know, like a wafer, then just pour some oil on it, like you would put a, you know, syrup on a pancake or something like that. So let me show you what that looks like. There we have the, either the cakes, in this case it's cakes, and you, well, no, you have the wafer on the left and the cakes on the right, and there's the oil. So whatever it was, either the one was mixed with oil or it was poured on them. And then let's go to the next slide. And there it is, the uh, wafers with the oil poured on them. That's what it would look like. Okay, so let's go on to verse 5. It says, but if, you, if your offering is a grain offering, watch us now baked in a pan all right so the first option was in an oven and it gave the two options for that here it says if it's baked in a pan that's an open pan like a like a frying pan it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil you shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it it is a grain offering so notice how this grain offering has variations to it. And they actually have options on how they can present it to the priest, to the Lord, essentially. And you know, all of this is typology of Jesus. And I'm going to put it all together in a moment, okay? So what I want to remind you here is that he's saying, if it's made in a pan, a frying pan, because I guess not everyone had ovens, it says then, make sure that it doesn't have leaven, make sure that you mix it with oil, and then when it comes out of your pan, break it in pieces and pour oil, the oil on it. Let me show you a slide here to give us an idea of what that looked like. So there it is. They would break it in pieces and just pour oil on each piece. Okay. Now let's move on to verse 7. Still talking about this grain offering. If your grain offering is a grain offering, here's another option. Baked in a covered pan. So this is like a pot. Okay. Baked in a covered pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. So there's another option, the third option of how they can make it, they can cook it, they can bake it. Okay, and so let me show you what that looks like. Now here is a summary of what we've seen here. So remember, there were three different ways that they could prepare it. Either in an open pan, right? Or they could bake it in an oven. There's the grill right there. Or they could cook it in a pan, the open pan, which you see at the bottom. Or a covered pan, which is on the top left there. So those are the three different ways that this grain offering could be prepared. All right, so how is this grain offering a picture of the life of Jesus? And like I said to you, this is an extensive teaching that could easily be a series. And maybe we'll do that one day. But today, because we're focusing on Hebrews, I want to stay focused. I'm just going to, I'm giving you summaries today, okay? So, but how is this a picture of the life of Jesus? Well, <laughs> the fine flower represents the perfection of Jesus. 
And remember also in John 6.35, he said he's the bread of life. And so it represents him, his body. And then the oil represents the Holy Spirit, as you know. In the Bible, whenever you look at oil or talk about oil, it generally represents, it's a type of the Holy Spirit. And so remember that according to Matthew 1.18, uh, Mary conceived of, she, she conceived of the Holy Spirit. She conceived Jesus. This is why the oil had to be mixed with a fine flour because he was fully human. He was fully God coming into one. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So that mix, because he kept on saying, mix it with the oil. That is the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary and conceiving the divine child. Amen. And so that's what that's a type of. And then, of course, we also see in Acts 10.38 that Jesus was anointed of the Holy Spirit. So in some cases, it says, then afterwards, pour oil over it. Break the pieces and pour over it. Well, the breaking is, you know, when Jesus broke the bread. This is my body given for you. It was his body given for us. And so the oil being poured on it was represents him being anointed of the Holy Spirit. Like I said, I'm giving you summaries. This is actually in-depth and powerful if we study it. And then the frank incense represents his deity. In other words, you know, the fact that he is fully man, fully God. And as a man, God himself ministered through him. He emitted, because that's what the frank incense does, is it emits the odor, the smell. Jesus emitted the presence, the fullness of God, the glory of God, as it says. And that's what that represents, is the fact that he's a deity, but also the fact that he emits the very glory of the Father. Amen. It's pretty powerful stuff. Now, all grain offerings, remember, were to be without leaven, without yeast. Why is that? Because whenever you read about yeast in the Bible, it talks about evil. Specifically, one kind of evil, pride. Because remember, yeast puffs up. It puffs up dough. And said, don't put that on. Because Jesus was not proud. He was humble. He was lowly in heart. Amen. And so he had no evil in him. That's why it had to have no yeast. Now, remember I said to you, remember the word cakes. Right? In Leviticus chapter 2 verse 4, we saw that. It said, bring in all those cakes. Well, what is that cake a type of? Yes, it is the body of Jesus. It represents his body. But it also represents his crucifixion, or you could say his suffering. Because here's the thing. Let me show you the Strong's definition for that word cakes that we saw in Leviticus 2, uh, verse 4. It is the word cakes. There's the number. There's the Hebrew. And it's pronounced halah or something like that. And here's how it's defined. A cake as usually punctured. In other words, holes are made in it. Probably perforated in other words all the way through so basically what this cake or this wafer is is that it's punctured and most people know it as the ezekiel bread and it has little holes on it that has punctures on it that's all representative of jesus being crucified he was pierced remember he's pierced on his side too on his hands and his feet and so what that's what that represents as far as it goes with jesus and so the other thing that I want to share as we get back onto what we're studying here tonight is, is that remember there were three ways the flour was baked. Well, what do those three ways represent? They represent how Jesus suffered for us. The oven talks about his unseen sufferings. It is put in the oven. The oven is enclosed. We don't really see what's going on there. Well, it talks about how the unseen sufferings, those sufferings that we don't even know he went through, but yet he suffered and endured for us. The pan, which is the like a frying pan, the open pan, talks about his visible sufferings. Those are the ones that everyone could see, how he was whipped, how he was nailed to the cross. They were the visible sufferings of Jesus. And then the covered pan, which is basically either with a lid or enclosed, well, that represents both, the intensity of both. Some people, we come to realize, you know, what he went through in his soul as we read the word, but they represent both. And as I said to you, this is really a lot deeper, and I don't, I don't want to rabbit trail too much on that, 
But I think it's good for us to know that. Because when God said, as far as the fifth requirement, is that this priest must bring both. The sacrifice of a shed, in other words, blood was shed of an animal, which is the type of Jesus. And then also the gift, the grain offering, which is representative of the life that Jesus lived and endured and went through for you and I. So together they paint the whole picture. And this is why then there is forgiveness of sins. And it says the priest must also do that. Now, did Jesus do that for you and me? Of course he did. He brought his own blood into the heavenly temple and presented it before the Father at the mercy seat. Amen. So he brought this, the ultimate sacrifice. And then he himself coming in after being resurrected, well, that all represented the life that he lived. He had the marks. He still has the marks. We'll see them. Amen. And so that represents the gift offering or the grain offering. He presented them both once for all time, eternally before the Father. Praise God for that. Amen. And so <laughs> to get back to the qualifications of priesthood, as far as Jesus is concerned, that we've seen in verses 1 through 4. Number one, he became one of us. So he is from among us. So does he qualify? Yes, he does. Number two, he was chosen by God himself. Yes, he was. We've seen that. So he qualifies. Number three, he was ordained to represent us before God. Yes, he was. So he qualifies. Number four, as human, he relates to us totally and completely so he can have compassion on us. Yes, he does. He qualifies. And then number five, he offered the perfect sacrifice and gift offering for our sin. Yes, he did. Praise God. So in all of that, the author is showing these Hebrew believers and those who are thinking about believing and those who may have been considering walking away from it. Hopefully they will see the whole picture and understand, wow, what we did was a type and shadow. He's actually the real and he fulfilled it all. And then some, because he did it eternally. Not He doesn't have to offer it year by year, day by day. It is once for all. It is done for eternity. Praise God for that. Amen. What a powerful study. I mean, Jesus more than qualifies as our priest. Amen. I'm sure you agree with that. That's why we've subtitled this session, you know, the overqualified. He's overqualified as priest. He certainly is. He's overqualified. Why? So that we can have absolute confidence and trust in God, in our redemption, in Jesus, and Jesus as our high priest, as our king priest, as our chief priest. Amen. We need no other praise God. We trust that you are blessed by this message. For more information about our ministry or to make a donation to help us continue spreading the gospel, please visit our website at redemptioninjesus.com.